0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And we have been spending an awful lot of time in Italy lately because of our Medici Super Series. So today, we thought we'd move a little further north
3: to Sweden. And our subject for today is going to be Emanuel Swedenborg, who was famously called by the philosopher D.T. Suzuki, the Buddha of the North. And he was a mechanical genius who
2: began his whole body of work by looking for mechanical explanations for nature. So a mechanical explanation for the physical world. And from there, he began to study the soul as it related to the human body. And he was quite advanced for his time as far as science goes. He had anatomical theories that weren't proven until the late 19th century, and we're talking about a 17th century guy.
3: Yeah, but what makes him truly interesting is that, while well, in the midst of all these studies about the soul, he has a crisis of faith and abandons his scientific pursuits altogether. And he spends the rest of his life uh, trying to explicate the scriptures and his followers end up founding a church in his name. So this is our, our subject for today. So let's go back to his roots. He was born January
2: 29, 1688, in Stockholm as Emanuel Swedenborg. His father, Jesper, was a Swedish clergyman, a court chaplain, and also a professor of theology, who later became the Bishop of Skara. And their family was ennobled, which is my current favorite word, in 1719, and that's when they took the name Swedenborg.
3: And the young Emmanuel studied philosophy at the University of Uppsala and spent five years abroad. He was. This becomes a common theme in his life, going abroad and uh, learning lots of new things. But for this first trip, he becomes interested in mathematics and natural sciences and pursues study in England and Holland, France and Germany, learning mechanical skills. Even when he's in England, he moves in uh, Newton's circles. And he was a bit of
2: a Da Vinci-esque genius. He's a real mechanical hotshot. He thought up new ways to make docks, had some uh, vague ideas about submarines and the airplane, which Sarah mentioned it was a good thing he didn't stick to this, if you remember our bungled flight attempts episode. This was a
3: high point for bungled (laughs) flight attempts. (laughs) And he even had some ideas about a machine gun. But when he returns to Sweden in 1715, he starts to publish the Daedalus Hyperboreus, which is Sweden's first scientific journal. And there he's able to write about mechanical inventions and discoveries. And all of his work in the mechanical sciences really starts to impress King Charles XII, who makes him an assistant to one of the biggest names in Swedish mechanical science at the time. And he gets a position at the Royal Board of Mines and he later becomes an assessor there. But this is his day job. So imagine through almost all of the writings we're going to be talking about later in the podcast. This is what he's doing for most of his time, working at the mines, improving the country's mining industry. And mining was uh, a huge pursuit in Sweden at the time.
2: So he goes home from his day of mining science and works on the other sciences and philosophy, everything from cosmology and corpuscular philosophy to math and human sensory perceptions. He does the first work on algebra in the Swedish language, lots of stuff on chemistry and physics, and he's a bit of a, a jack-of-all-trades. He even spends some of his time composing
3: poems in Latin, so he apparently did more in his downtime than I do. We're going to catch up with him at his second major trip abroad So a few years after he's ennobled in 1719, he goes abroad again, and he publishes some works on natural philosophy and chemistry, but then he doesn't write much for about 10 years, and it's clear that when he starts again in 1733, he's been reading a lot and thinking a lot. He goes on his third European tour and just goes crazy with the publishing. And this is when he switches from thinking about inventions
2: and starts thinking about the mechanical ways to explain nature that we'd mentioned before. He publishes philosophical and logical works. The first folio is called Principle of Natural Things. And in this work, he comes pretty close to things that modern science comes up with much later. For instance, he has a theory that is very close to what we know about the atom with a nucleus and electrons. And also an idea that's very close to the Kant-Laplace nebular theory that the suns and planets form a common nebula. So a man ahead of his time. But
3: then his course of study changes again, and he starts to switch toward studying the soul as related to the body. He goes home in 1734, and his father dies in 1735, and he takes a leave of absence from his assessor job at the mines and starts to travel again. This time he goes to France and Italy and Holland. And he writes the Economa Regni Animalis, which is uh, translated as the economy of the animal kingdom, and returns to Stockholm. Although I read one thing that was interesting that's not the best translation for that title. It's kind of misleading. He means the kingdom of the anima or soul when he says Regni Animali, not the animal kingdom, which is what yeah. you might <laughs> think when you first read that. Um, so another uh, translation you could kind of think of is the biological basis of the soul. Right, the the less literal (laughs) translation. And this work draws Swedenborg closer to
2: the study of the body. He studies human anatomy and physiology, but he's also beginning to think about the study of the soul, specifically trying to prove the immortality of the soul to the senses themselves, according to Encyclopedia Britannica. And he has a really excellent understanding of the cerebral cortex's role, its sensory, motor, and cognitive functions, um, Most people thought it didn't really have a purpose. It was just kind of a a leftover.
3: Even cortex means rind, so people really thought it was the brain rind, which (laughs) gives you an idea of of the common thought at the time. He realizes this is something important, and it's where he's going to start in his search for the soul. He also considered the pituitary gland to be the crown of the brain, which is a pretty revolutionary thought for the time. And he figured all of this out by basically reading and studying the work of other scientists. He didn't report much on his own experiments. Um, But he didn't just read their analysis of their own work. He looked at their experiments and looked at all of the stuff that they found and drew his own conclusions. And that's how he was able to come up with these ideas that were so different from what everybody else was thinking at the time. And you might think that
2: these ideas would be very exciting to the medical and scientific community, but uh, you would be wrong. His anatomical studies weren't given much heed. And according to an article by Charles G. Gross in The Neuroscientist, this is because these little nuggets of scientific brilliance were embedded in these huge books he wrote about the soul and you know, by the point they were available, he had the reputation of a mystic. So you might be less inclined to listen. Yeah. Well, and
3: also he's not a professor. He's not working with people who are going to read and review his work. Um, there, there wouldn't be a strong reason for a contemporary scientist to even read what he was writing. But by the time that all these works kind of really came out there in the late 19th century, scholars started looking at these ideas, especially these ideas about the brain and realizing, oh my gosh, we just figured this stuff out recently. And he had he had ideas for this back in the 1700s. But after the economy, he got to work on
2: more studies of anatomy and the soul, but um, these things were brought to a halt by a religious crisis. So he started a new travel journal in July of 1743. It's basic, you know, kind of banal, everyday kind of entries. And then suddenly it turns into this dream journal that's known as the Journal of Dreams, um, detailing recalled dreams and nighttime spiritual experiences from March to October 1744. And some of these are surprisingly
3: most pornographic and embarrassed later more prudish Victorian readers. You know, on April 7th, 1744, he has this first vision of Christ, which makes him feel a little better about the temptation of intellectual pride, which was just getting him down, I guess. And by April 1745, he had received a definitive call to abandon worldly learning. Um, So that's the end of his work in the natural sciences. So that brings
2: us to his theological work, which is a bit dense. Basically. God called him, according to him, to explain the spiritual meaning of scripture. So Swedenborg started writing about angels, paradise, and the Last Judgment, as well as the New Jerusalem. He was kind of like an old school prophet, is what Sarah and I compared him to.
3: Yeah. And from then on, he he gets into... Bible interpretation and relating the world of spirits and angels, and he writes thirty volumes in Latin. Most of his works are anonymous, and he does them from 1749 to 1771. Um, his best-known theological work is on heaven and its wonders, and on hell. And his final work is True Christian Religion. Um, but he says he's gotten into this, it, you know, new vocation because of a divine vision and call. And Encyclopedia Britannica again says that his spiritual senses were opened so that he might be in the spiritual world as consciously as in the material world. And the 30 volumes, he really writes them as God's revelations.
2: He wanted to enter um, a new age of truth and reason to religion, and he thought that these new revelations of his that he was putting down were the second coming. And anything that's as broad as a religion is difficult to get a grasp on and and distill into something as short as a podcast. So we thought it would be a good idea to talk with someone who's well-versed in the Swedenborgian religion. And so we talked to Lisa Oz, who was raised as a
3: Swedenborgian and introduced her husband, Dr. Oz, to the religion as well. And we wanted to start by better understanding Swedenborg's epiphany, since clearly this
1: was the defining experience in his life. So that's where we started. Hello, I am Lisa Oz, author of Us, Transforming Ourselves and the Relationships that Matter Most. From my understanding of his epiphany, it it seemed like it was something overnight, but it was a while in coming in terms of the preparation for this, what we as Swedenborgians um, like to see as a spiritual opening of his of his of his eyes, his opening of his spiritual eyes, and being able to see into the spiritual dimension, he had studied um, obviously studied religion very um, closely at, from very, at a very early age, and um, also practiced breathing techniques. He had started journaling his dreams. Um, of the year before his spiritual awakening. Um, so it wasn't that it was just out of the blue. One day he was a scientist and the next day he was a theologian. He had wrote, written extensively on religion and philosophy and tried to find a connection to the spiritual in the human brain. He was looking for the seat of the soul. So there was a, a lot of preparation leading up to his epiphany. And um, at what I find particularly entertaining for me was that the first um, the first communication he had with the spiritual world directly was someone telling him not to eat so much, which I think is really relevant <laughs> in my own life.
2: Lisa went on to explain that this epiphany didn't stifle Swedenborg's traditional life. He still carried out his duties as a member of the aristocracy, Mr. Ennobled Man, and he didn't become a recluse, as you might imagine a mystic would. You know, when I think of a mystic, I usually think of someone who's kind of hidden away from the world, say, at a convent.
3: Yeah, or a dude living in a
2: cave. But he wasn't a recluse. Um He was a mystic, however, and since the definition of mystic can be a bit of a controversial one when talking about Swedenborg, uh, we uh, we asked a Swedenborgian
1: to explain what she thought. He was mystical. Um, I think that mystical experience is one where you have a direct experience of the numinous. And that was exactly what Swedenborg was describing. It was, uh, for most of us who do not have mystical experiences, we have to take it on someone else's word that this other realm exists. So
3: Immanuel Swedenborg spends the rest of his life working on Uh, these theological writings, and he dies in London in 1772. But despite never preaching, he stuck solely to writing, mostly in Latin. The first Swedenborgian societies start popping up in the 1780s, and the Church of the New Jerusalem is founded in London later in that decade. And one of uh, the most interesting things about this guy is how his ideas inspire writers like Balzac, Baudelaire, Emerson, Yeats, the Brownings, Blake Coleridge, Henry James Sr., the philosopher, even Helen Keller. Yeah, we're not
2: talking about some obscure historical figure. He was actually a very influential person. And that led us to question ourselves as to why we had never heard of this man and didn't know who he was. So we asked Lisa a little bit about um, how he's influenced contemporary thought.
3: Yeah, and she said that some of the impact of Swedenborg on contemporary spiritual thought is indirect, and it comes through all of those writers that we can be reading almost a distilled version of his ideas in some of their works. Um, But while he was influential in indirect ways, we were also curious about why his church doesn't have a bigger presence today. I think
1: mostly there's not a large Swedenborgian church today because there's no impetus to to convert or proselytize because we just don't care. It doesn't (laughs) matter if people are other religions, as long as they're living a life of love and compassion and connection and relationship, that's great. And so I think that there's not that movement to spread the church. The other thing is that Swedenborg's writings are not easy. They are, it is thousands and thousands of pages. I think it's 30 some volumes of very dense translated from the Latin, um, Heavy material, and it's not the kind of thing you can just pick up and say, "Wow, this makes sense."
2: And if you're looking for a good place to start with some of Swedenborg's works, because again, it it is dense. We tried to read some of it and, and had a difficult time. Uh, Lisa told us her favorite of his many works was Arcana Celestia, and you know he does write like a scientist. It's it's dry and it's to the point, but he also sees some of Scripture as. I guess we'd say parables for your
3: spiritual journey. She also gave us a word to the wise about Swedenborg. He's a man of his time, and, for example, his views toward women wouldn't seem particularly enlightened, and certainly not as enlightened as the rest of his scientific work. Um, But, you know, just to consider his historical context when reading his works. And... We were saying it's just
2: so interesting, it's always interesting to see someone who's so fully engaged in both science and religion. It was equal interest in both, although it's also interesting that he felt he couldn't do them at the same time. Because after all, he did drop
3: science as
2: an ego-driven pursuit, at least for him. But it's also so interesting
3: that science, he he couldn't drop it completely. He may have stopped his scientific writings, but science is clearly influencing His theological work.
2: Right, it reminded me of a book I was reading, uh, John Horgan's Rational Mysticism, which tries to impose a sort of rational scientific framework on top of the idea
3: of mysticism, which is, I guess, something that Swedenborg also did. Fortunately for you guys, we have some really great articles on the brain and on religion written by our own Molly Edmonds of Stuff Mom Never Told You. The first is, is the brain hardwired for religion? And the second is morality located in the brain? And you can find both of these on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the howstuffworks.com homepage. and travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel, it's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection, and it's really breathable so you don't get hot.